it's Monday the 14th of November and welcome to a new week here on Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jung-woo. The leaders of South Korea, the US and Japan are met in Cambodia, adopting a joint statement on cooperation spanning security and economic issues. We'll find out more in news briefings shortly. And we'll also explore the significance of the meeting further for our in-depth as well as what a separate South Korea-Japan bilateral meeting could mean for future relations as well. And later on Monday's Sports Roundup, we take a look at the final roster for the South Korean national football team heading to the Qatar World Cup. Let's begin Korea 24. The week of diplomacy is well underway. President Yoon Sung-yeol has moved on to Bali, Indonesia for meetings of the G20 nations. But prior to that, he held extensive discussions with leaders of the United States and Japan in Cambodia. The Allies agreed to cooperate in both security and the economy. For more on this and our other headlines of the day, we're joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Eunice Kim. Eunice, hello. Hello. Let's get to the content of the bilateral and trilateral meetings President Yun held with his US and Japanese counterparts. Uh, North Korea ranked highly on the discussion points, but uh, the three leaders also adopted a comprehensive joint statement covering cooperation in both security and the economy. Yeah, that's right. On the last day of his Cambodia visit for ASEAN led multilateral forums, President Yoon Song-yeol had face-to-face meetings with President Joe Biden of the US and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida on the sidelines to discuss ways to respond to North Korea's escalating military provocations. This marked their first sit-down in 5 months, President Yoon on Sunday saying their three-way coordination is, quote-unquote, the great bastion of defending universal values and of achieving peace and stability on the Korean Peninsula and beyond. The leaders also expressed their intent to share real-time intelligence regarding North Korea's missile activity and agreed to establish a consultative body on economic security and to jointly respond to what they called economic coercion. The meeting produced a joint statement on both security and economic cooperation for the first time. Also on Sunday, President Yoon reiterated his Indo-Pacific strategy he first had unveiled on Friday in speaking to leaders of ASEAN during an East Asia summit, the president underlined that North Korea's denuclearization was a precondition for peace in the Indo-Pacific region. He stressed that key values such as freedom, human rights, and the rule of law should be respected in the region, and forcible unilateral changes of the status quo should not be allowed. Meanwhile, what were some outcomes of the bilateral summits that President Yoon held? Yeah, President Yoon and President Biden agreed to mobilize all available means to use overwhelming force in response to any form of nuclear activity by North Korea. A White House readout of the meeting said President Biden reaffirmed the U.S. extended deterrence commitment to South Korea using the full range of U.S. defense capabilities, including nuclear conventional and missile defense capabilities. He also emphasized the U.S. commitment to identify additional steps to further reinforce deterrence in the face of North Korea's nuclear threats. Additionally, 
the two also addressed concerns on the Inflation Reduction Act, also known as the IRA, and the exclusion of South Korean automakers from U.S. tax credits on EVs. Biden reportedly said South Korean businesses greatly contribute to the U.S. economy in the auto and electric battery industries, which should be considered in implementing the IRA. President Yoon also sat down with Japan's Prime Minister Kishida in a 45-minute summit meeting in contrast to their brief chat back in September on the margins of the UN General Assembly in New York. The two leaders agreed to continue consultation on swiftly resolving their pending issues, one of which, of course, is the contentious matter of compensating Korean victims of Japan's wartime forced labor. Yes, we'll have more analysis on the outcomes of the summits uh, for our in-depth segment coming up later. That's after this news briefing. Uh, The President and the First Lady are in Bali now for the G20 meetings, and President Yun has already given a keynote speech on the role of corporations in overcoming multifaceted global crises at a meeting of companies from the Group of 20 Nations on Monday. That's right. These meetings are called the B20, or the Business 20 Summit. Addressing business leaders, President Yoon called for private sector-led supply innovation rather than state intervention to overcome these global challenges as the latest crisis is assessed to have stemmed from a supply-side shock. Uh, he said that the solution should be found from the supply end And then, with the government's roles also undergoing relevant changes, the president also underscored the need to reestablish a digital order, saying that the world needs to promote universal values in the digital sphere to realize a more prosperous life for mankind through innovations in supply using digital technologies. And give us a preview of what else lies ahead for the president in Bali. Yeah, Tuesday will be his last full day of his uh, diplomatic tour before he is set to return to Seoul on Wednesday morning, according to the presidential office, even though the G20 summit itself does run through Thursday. During Tuesday's G20 summit, the president is expected to engage in discussion sessions on food, energy, security, and health. He's also already met with host leader Indonesian President Joko Widodo on Monday prior to attending a South Korea-Indonesia business roundtable. President Yoon also set to hold a luncheon meeting with South Korean businesses in Indonesia to listen to their difficulties and suggestions for improved environments. Another G20 sideline event to watch are the outcomes of the first face-to-face meeting between U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping, who is traveling outside of China for the first time since the pandemic for these summits. Though the two are not strangers and, in fact, had spent some time together when they were deputies, there are no shortage of issues to discuss, including what each side's red lines are, for example, on the issue of Taiwan. Let's head to domestic headlines next. Unionized firefighters have filed a complaint against Interior Minister Yi Sang-min as the ongoing investigation into the Itaewon crowd crush faces criticism that it's only focusing on frontline responders. That's right. This is quite rare for firefighters to make such a public move against a cabinet minister. The firefighters chapter under the Confederation of Korean Government Employees Unit Unions filed the complaint with the Special Investigation Headquarters 
headquarters under the police on Monday, accusing Minister Lee of causing death and injury by occupational and gross negligence and dereliction of duty. The chapter urged the police to immediately open an investigation into the minister who is tasked with overseeing the nation's disaster and safety management while calling on him to take responsibility for the tragedy by stepping down. It also called on the National Assembly to lead efforts to determine the exact cause of the tragedy. And speaking of the National Assembly, the ruling and main opposition party floor leaders failed to reach consensus on launching a parliamentary probe into the Itaewon tragedy on Monday. Yeah, so they held a meeting with National Assembly Speaker Kim Jin-pyo. Uh, following that meeting, ruling People Power Party floor leader Chu Wo-young contended that a parliamentary probe would only spark political discord and disrupt the ongoing police investigation. He says senior members of his party oppose the idea on the belief that the main opposition Democratic Party's call is part of a political maneuver to distract from corruption allegations bogging down its leader Lee Jae-myung. DP floor leader Park Hong-gun, for his part, argued it is possible to concurrently conduct investigations by the police and the assembly, as the latter can offer measures to prevent the recurrence of such a tragedy. Should the PPP continue to oppose the investigation, the DP, which which holds a majority in Parliament, plans to handle the related bill without the ruling side during a plenary session scheduled for November 24th. We've got a late-breaking development now. A former special prosecutor who had led an investigation into a corruption scandal involving former President Pakane has been indicted over allegations that he accepted a Porsche car from a businessman. Can you tell us more? Yeah, the Seoul Central District Prosecutor's Office on Monday indicted ex-special prosecutor Park Young-soo without detention on charges of violating the anti-graft law. Park is alleged to have received a rental Porsche car in December of 2020 from a person who pretended to be a fisheries businessman. Right, so that's rental Porsche car. Okay, Uh, moving on. The head of the nation's advisory committee on infectious diseases once again called on the public to get their booster shots, specifically adapted to the BA4 and BA5 variants of the Omicron strain of COVID-19. So can you tell us more? Yeah, at a press briefing, Chung Gi-suk expressing concern once again over the low vaccination rate and a doubling of virus-related deaths over the past month with the start of the seventh wave of COVID. Uh, The chief advisor expressed great shock that the vaccination rate against the seasonal flu among seniors aged 65 or older stood at 77%, while the rate for COVID-19 boosters among those 60 and older stood at only 12.7%. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. You bet. President Yoon Suk-yeol held a trilateral summit with U.S. President Joe Biden and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida on the sidelines of the East Asia Summit in Cambodia on Sunday. They adopted a joint statement pledging to further bolster trilateral solidarity while strongly condemning North Korea's provocations. President Yoon also held separate bilateral meetings with both leaders. 
For our in-depth today, we'll be looking at the implications of the meetings, particularly when it comes to Seoul-Tokyo relations today. For that, we'll be connecting with two guests. First, we have Timothy Martin, the Korea Bureau Chief at the Wall Street Journal. Mr. Martin, hello, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And we also have standing by Professor Brad Glossman, the Deputy Director at the Centre for Rulemaking Strategies at Tama University in Japan. Professor, it's uh, good to have you back on the show as well. Always a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Mr. Martin, let me start with you. What did you, what do you think were the key takeaways from this meeting and this statement? Uh, Yun's office said it was the first time that the three countries adopted a joint statement of a quote-unquote comprehensive nature like this, covering economic and political points. We got a, another reminder of... Uh, increased coordination among the three countries, U.S., South Korea, and Japan, about rising threats from North Korea. This is a refrain we've been hearing for for weeks and months, really, uh, from from, uh, Seoul, Washington, and Tokyo. And uh, given the opportunity at uh, Cambodia, we we saw another meeting and, and more pledges in the direction that we've been hearing from these countries of late. Mm. Um, Professor Glossman, what did you note from uh, the meeting of the three, leader, three leaders and the statement? Well, I think very much uh, what, what Mr. Martin just said, you know, that it was, it's kind of de rigueur. It's very much what you would expect to see. I was taken by the reference to the trilateral economic security dialogue that they would take up in support for the Indo-Pacific economic framework. Uh, my interest in particular, and I think where the, uh, are on the economic dimensions of this relationship, but I think the security statements regarding North Korea, regarding uh, larger free and order, or free and open Indo-Pacific, were very much what we would expect from these three allies. Mm. Okay, North Korea was also mentioned. The three leaders warned that a nuclear test by the North will be met by a strong and stern response by the international community. Uh, Mr. Martin, was there any hint of what such a response might look like? Well, they've only talked about this in, in vague terms, and I think the U.S suggested that hey, we want to leave some maneuverability. We don't want to share everything all at once. But there were pledges to respond to a North Korea nuclear test from uh, p- diplomatic, security, uh, economic forces, as, as Professor uh, mentioned. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, there's been talk for, for weeks and months that uh, this uh, nuclear test, uh, when and if it comes, would be met with an unprecedented response uh, I think uh, if it is indeed the first time or an unprecedented response, uh, we'll have to see when it comes. Mm. Professor Glossman, how do you think the three countries will respond if North Korea does indeed carry out this long-awaited seventh nuclear test? They'll go to the United Nations Security Council, and the magic question is whether the Chinese will have the courage of their convictions or to, to actually stand with them, and then whether the Russians will try to provide some diplomatic cover for, for Pyongyang. So in other words, I think that there's a lot, if there, the strong and resolute response that's mentioned in the uh, trilateral statement they made, I think is, is um, a lot of wishful thinking. I mean, sadly, I just don't see a great deal of opportunities to do anything that are unprecedented other than additional sanctions that will likely be, for, um, sadly, again, more of a unilateral sort than those necessarily sanctioned by the UN itself. 
Before we move on from this trilateral summit, uh, Professor Glossman, there is criticism in South Korea that uh, perhaps the trilateral meeting and Yun's eagerness to get closer to the U.S. and Japan risks further distancing and antagonizing China. Uh, how big a risk do you think that is for South Korea? Well, I think it's a real risk, but I think the issue is whether or not that's really a, the fair balancing of the equities. Uh, in other words, China isn't going to like anything that South Korea does that somehow or other that, that Beijing considers to be disrespectful of its interests and priorities. And for South Korea to do what South Korea thinks is in its own natural interest, China is not going to respect. So my argument, my, my claim would be that the um, closer ties with the United States and with Japan, as we've long insisted and, and, and we've discussed on your program in the past, is in South Korea's interest. And if China is upset by that, then China should do more to better help South Korea accomplish its national security goals as well. And it's not doing that. So it's turned instead to Washington and Tokyo. Okay, let's move on to the bilateral summit between Kishida and President Yoon uh, on Sunday. It was their first meeting since uh, a very short one in September on the margins of the UN General Assembly in New York. This time they met for about 45 minutes and they are said to have strongly condemned North Korea's recent missile launches uh, as well as agree on continuing discussions to resolve pending bilateral issues. Uh, Mr. Martin, what more can you tell us uh, about the meeting? Well, it, I think if we take a step back, uh, the trilateral strength between South Korea, Japan, and U.S. is, is sort of re resuming uh, somewhat normal levels. Uh, ties between Japan and South Korea had become quite frayed under the prior Moon Jae-in administration. And it, even some basics of military cooperation seemed like a bit out of reach. But in recent weeks and months, spurred by North Korean provocations. We've seen a return to trilateral meetings, even trilateral military exercises. So we're seeing more coordination and cooperation uh, than, than we had seen in prior years. The, just the, the topics covered by Kishida and, and Yoon uh, covered not only North Korea, but, but also attempts to uh, pledge some support toward resolving their historical issues, which are very messy. Uh, and I think uh, this last summit was just another step in, in probably a march toward uh, resolving these issues going forward. Professor Glossman, what do you make about the fact that they met despite President Yun's attempts to improve relations with Japan since taking office? There have been some tensions that remain. Uh, what do you think perhaps made the summit possible? Uh, for example, how big a role do you think North Korea's uh, recent provocations and actions had on bringing the two together? Um, uh, some role. Um, you know, the, the truth of the matter is both governments understand the importance that of the relationship. And President Yoon is surrounded by a national security team that is, I think, deeply committed to both bilateral, you know, the U.S. ROK alliance and the, the relationship with Japan. And they'd like to see that move forward. North Korea has helped them out with the uh, just continuing spate of tests. Uh, the problem, and, and, and an additional factor, of course, is the U.S. pressure. There's an, uh, the Washington has been, is a firm believer both in, in seeing its two allies work together and bilaterally and trilaterally. So they've been making the opportunities for the trilateral summit. And if you hold a trilat and you don't hold a bilat, I think that the negative messaging is quite clear. So 
you know, the, the problem is really that both presidents or both leaders, excuse me, are weak domestically and, and, and Kishida is getting weaker, quite frankly. Uh, and so it requires, you know, we're not going to see any bold and dramatic steps. But what we've seen, I think, is a steady progress towards the relationship that both would like to see. But we still have a much, much longer way to go. I mean, and, and there's lots of little pieces that indicate you know, the desire, and I think, again, momentum building, but nothing that's substantive as yet. Right, so perhaps not bold or dramatic steps. But, uh, Mr Martin, in the trilateral meeting, the three countries also agreed to share information about North Korea missiles in real time in order to improve detection and analysis of the regime's weapons. And this has led to speculation that the intelligence-sharing pact between South Korea and Japan, uh, known as the General Security of Military Information Agreement, or GSOMIA for short, uh, could be normalised soon as well. Uh, what can you tell us about such a possibility? North Korea has been one of the issues that, even when relations between Seoul and Tokyo are quite testy, uh, has been one, one thing that the two countries can agree upon. And I think any type of normalizing of military sharing information would be another example of that. Uh, you know, during uh, really when, when things hit a, a, a new low uh, in 2019 between Japan and, and South Korea, the military sharing deal was one of the, the things that Seoul threatened to take off the table. Uh, it didn't happen. Um, and, yeah, I mean, what we're seeing from North Korea just in recent weeks, they've flown a missile over Japan. Uh, they've, they've triggered emergency alarms in, in South Korea. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a strong moment uh, to put aside uh, differences to, to try and uh, forward national security. But I think Professor Glasserman raised a great point. Any type of resolution on historical issues in South Korea or Japan would come at a significant political price domestically, and both leaders, including Yoon, uh, are are not that popular at the moment. So, I think all of this, all of these pledges toward uh, certainly non-security issues, uh, is fine and well. But once we get to the substantive steps, that's going to require a, a political price that I'm not sure uh, President Yoon is is ready to pay at this moment. Right, just before we get to the historical issues, uh, Professor Glossman, how uh, significant would an agreement to normalise GSOMIA be for the two nations? It would be a, a, a helpful step forward. But, I mean, to be very honest, GSOMIA is a fairly routine information-sharing agreement. It's nothing very special. It just sets up the forms and formats, and most governments have them. In fact, the, one of the things that, you, that the sole government did uh, as it was contemplating originally, the GSOMIA was just explaining to the public how routine it was and how very unspecial it wasn't, or it was. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it would be a sign of normalization. It would be a sign of trust. It would be a sign that something contentious has been taken off the table. But the real issues, as you know, as your listeners know, are going to be with dealing with the historical questions. And this, the problems with GSOMIA are, are collateral damage to the larger set of, of uh, historical issues. Right, talking about the historical issues then, the presidential office said Yun and Kishida agreed on the need to continue discussions on pending bilateral issues. Uh, what they 
discussed was not mentioned, though. Uh, the most urgent issue is, of course, the issue concerning the victims of Japan's wartime forced labour. To briefly remind our listeners, in 2018, the South Korean Supreme Court ordered Japanese companies historically involved with the atrocity to compensate groups of Korean victims. Uh, they refused, however, and the Supreme Court has yet to decide now whether to liquidate the assets of those companies in Korea to compensate the victims. Uh, Mr. Martin, you hinted at it earlier, but can you expand a bit more for us where perhaps the two sides currently stand on this issue? I think under President Yoon, who took office in May, we've seen a normalizing in, in diplomatic ties between two countries. Uh, that's what diplomatic officials uh, from, from both places are telling me. Uh, this historical issue is just very tricky. I mean, the Supreme Court uh, should provide a ruling on, on the liquidation of, of assets from, from a Tokyo company, but uh, we've yet to see that happen. I think there's some consideration to the two governments working out a solution, but that is very fraught with, uh, you know, who gives and the, and the details are very contentious. Um, we've seen some on the South Korea side. There's any number of task force now set up to come up with creative solutions. Um, but the, the victims involved, um, you know, have had their, their, their contentions. Um, uh, but some of the, the solutions uh, Japan isn't necessarily uh, open to accepting. I mean, we've, we've heard suggestions that um, maybe South Korea creates some type of uh, compensation scheme where the South Koreans uh, are paying out uh, to victims. And when you talk to the victims' groups themselves, they, they say the money is secondary. You know, what they're, what they're looking for is contrition uh, and apology. And uh, doesn't um, uh, listeners would be aware that's, that's something that Tokyo is probably not uh, uh, freely willing to, to provide at the moment. Professor Glossman, despite uh, some of the positive words by the two leaders, uh, is there any sign, do you think, uh, that this issue can be resolved soon? Soon, no. <laughs> but, but resolved, yes. And I, again, I think it goes back to the understanding among politicians that are focused in both countries on national interest as opposed to domestic political games that they play, sadly. They really do need a good relationship. And... As I've long insisted, I think the question becomes the demonstration on the part of the Seoul government, sadly to the satisfaction of the Tokyo government, that it is prepared to pay a political price in defense of the bilateral relationship. In other words, to pay a part, you know, to, 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 to do something that is unpopular at home to demonstrate its sincerity and its commitment to working this out and getting focused on the, on the future. Um, and that's, that's a tough thing to do at any time, but especially when you've got low public approval ratings. And, and Japan's margin, the Kishida government's margin for maneuver has diminished as his unpopularity has grown as well. But, uh, you know, there is very much the opportunity and the desire to see this improve. It's just going to be really tough decisions, and uh, it, it's, they're always difficult. Uh, there just isn't another way to put it. And, you know, the question becomes the degree to which South Korea acknowledges that the Ultimately, the 65 normalization agreement is still what prevails, that it will it, it officially acknowledges that Japan is not going to do anything else. And then I think if it does that and, and Mr. And President Yoon pays the heat, then Japan will, I think, probably provide both the apologies again, which it has provided at one form or another, and I think some money that would, as you say, would be the symbolism. But the more important thing is the acknowledgement of responsibility in some form or fashion. So you're saying it has to be Seoul that makes the first concession and not the other way around? 
I'm, I'm unfortunate. I, I think that at this point, I mean, it's Seoul has to make a step, and Japan has to be prepared to reciprocate. And as we've long discussed, I'm afraid that Seoul is going to have to take a bigger step now just because Japan has gotten weaker. And that's, that's incredibly unfortunate. But um, I'm afraid it's just a political reality at this moment. That could change. But again, um, and I think my, my sense is that Japan has dragged its feet for the last year or so. Uh, going slower than it should, and, and events in time have caught up with it for that. OK, we'll have to wrap it up there. We'll be speaking to Timothy Martin from The Wall Street Journal and Professor Brad Glossman from Tama University in Japan. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you. We, it always seems to be a depressing discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Martin. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 8.51 points, or 0.34% on Monday, ending the day at 2,474.65. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 1.68 points, or 0.23%, closing the day at 729.54. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 7.51 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,325.91. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We carry on now to our daily segment, Korea Trending, looking at some of the other stories that have been trending online today. And for that, we have joining us in the studio... Our contributor, Walter Lee, to bring us those story. Walter, hello. It's good to see you again. Hello, Chang Ho. It's always good to see you. Yeah, so what topics do you have for us today? Okay, so first we'll find out what penalty prosecutors sought for for former YG Entertainment chief Yang Hyung Sok on charges of threatening an informant who testified against one uh, one of the label's artists. Now, we'll also talk about South Korean pianist Lee Hyuk winning first prize at a renowned international music competition in France. And finally, we'll learn which K-pop star will perform at the opening ceremony of the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. Okay, so we begin with an update to a story that goes a little while back. Can you tell us more? Yeah, so prosecutors have sought a three-year prison sentence for former YG Entertainment CEO Yang Hyung-sok on charges of threatening an informant who testified to police that singer-rapper Kim Han-bin, better known by his stage name B.I., had bought drugs. Now, the prosecution made the request on Monday during a hearing at the Seoul Central District Prosecutor's Office. Young has been on trial on allegations he threatened Han Sohee, a K-pop trainee, and coerced her to reverse her testimony about Kim's drug use. The former CEO allegedly threatened to end the female trainee's career if her testimony was not retracted. Yes, the chilling word that he allegedly used was kill when talking about killing her career. Mm. Can you briefly remind us to what happened to the rapper B.I. for those who might be new to the story? Yeah, sure thing. So the singer faced trial last September and was sentenced to three years in prison, suspended for four years for illegal drug use. The prosecution had asked the court to sentence B.I. to three years in prison and to slap a fine of one and a half million won, so around 1,100 US dollars, for smoking marijuana on three occasions and purchasing LSD on eight occasions back in 2016. Now, uh, Yang has continuously denied any 
denied such allegations. Mm -hmm. uh, was there any change in that stance on Monday? Uh, no. So he stuck by the position when he gave a final statement at the hearing. He said that after retiring as a singer, he has spent the last 27 years putting all his passion and ability into fostering young, younger singers, adding that it doesn't make sense that he made such threatening remarks to Han. The court will issue a verdict on December 22nd. OK, so we'll see what happens then. Right, let's move on. What do you have for us next? Yes, South Korean pianist Lee Hyuk won the first prize at a renowned international classical music competition in France over the weekend. The 22-year-old was declared the co-winner of the Long T-Ball competition at the finals held in Théâtre de Chalet in Paris on Sunday. The other co-winner is Japan's Masaya Kame. Now, Michael Davidman of the US finished third in Sunday's finals, while Kotaro Shigemori of Japan came in fourth. Now, fellow South Korean No Hee-sung placed fifth. Okay, so can you tell us more about this uh, prestigious competition? Yeah, sure. So it was established in 1943. The Long T-Ball competition is regarded to be one of the world's top 10 international classical music competitions for pianists, violinists and singers. Now, Yi is only the second South Korean to win the piano edition of the competition after Im Dong-hyuk, who won it in 2001. Now, winners from other editions include violinist Shin Hyun-soo in 2008 and bass baritone Shin Kim Ki-hwan in 2011. For finishing top, Yi is set to receive 27,500 euros in prize money. That's around 28,480 US dollars. And as regular listeners of Career 24 might know, we actually had him on the show before for mm. Touch Basin's Hole last year. And we know that uh, this isn't the first big achievement E has made in his career, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, e made headlines when he was named the youngest winner ever of the Mos Moscow Chopin competition for young pianists in 2012. In October of last year, E became the only South Korean to advance to the finals of the 18th Chopin International Piano Competition. Two months later, he went on to win first prize at the Concours International de Piano Grand Prix Animoto, uh, Animota to Chopin. He is currently studying piano at the École Normale Conservatory in Paris. OK, so another wonderful achievement. And our interview with E is available on our KBS World Radio YouTube page for any listeners curious about his story. OK, let's turn to our final trending topic now. Uh, we had talked on the show recently about how members mm -hmm. of the K-pop global sensation BTS are releasing solo projects. And I believe another member is also branching out, uh, which is what our last story is about. Yeah, that's correct. So Jungkook, one of the members of BTS, will perform at the opening ceremony of the 2022 FIFA World Cup in Qatar on Sunday. Now, the singer's management agency, Big Hit Music, announced yesterday that Jungkook will play, take part in the opening ceremony and finish, feature on the official soundtrack of the 2022 World Cup. Now, the announcement comes after rumours emerged that BTS could play a pivotal musical role in the world's biggest football competition, later fueled by a confirmation that the singer visited Qatar on his own last month. Yeah, it's quite interesting that Qatar chose Jungkook to take the stage, as most often uh, host countries of major international events tend to have their own artists uh, perform to promote their country and culture. Yeah, that's correct. So Qatar's selection has drawn attention from making such a choice. The singer's up and coming perform upcoming performance has also attracted strong attention and is regarded to be significant in that it is expected to further solidify the group's stance as a major global star. 
Yes, Jungkook has yet to have his own solo album, uh, but has released several solo songs that have been successful, right? He has. So the most notable comes from his hit collaboration with American singer-songwriter-producer Charlie Puth and on their song Left and Right, which climbed back to number 37 in its, seventh, in its 11th consecutive week sorry, on the Billboard Hot 100 chart for the week ending on September 17th. His solo songs Euphoria and Stay Alive both racked up hundreds of millions of streams on music streaming platforms. Yeah, some have seen it as a controversial decision. Other celebrities like David Beckham have been criticised for working with the competition to promote it due to uh, the country's human rights record. Mm. But still, uh, it does promise to be quite a significant stage for Jungkook. That's where we'll wrap it up for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Walter, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. It's time now to get the latest sporting updates in our weekly segment, Monday Sports Roundup. And providing us with the highlights is sports journalist Yuji Ho from the Yanat News Agency here in Seoul. Jiu, hello. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, now, the 2022 FIFA World Cup in Qatar is less than a week away. And excitement is, of course, building. The South Korean squad was announced last Saturday. Uh, and then the team flew out to Doha just past midnight Monday. So, Tihor, let's look at the 26-man team in more detail. Uh, who made the final list then? Right. Uh, I guess really to the surprise of nobody here, uh, Son Heung-min, his facial injury and all, was named to the team. Uh, head coach Paolo Bento said he does not yet have the timeline or timetable for Son Heung-min's return to training. But the hope is he will be able to play at least uh, the final couple of group matches uh, in, in Qatar. You know, Son Heung-min took to social media last week to declare his willingness or, I guess, intention to play with a protective mask on his face if that's what it takes to play for the country in the World Cup. You know, he had the surgery to uh, on uh, fractures around his left eye on November 4th, uh, being, ready, being ready for the first match against Uruguay on November 24th. Might be a little tight. Uh, you know, you, you talk about match fitness, conditioning being also a concern, not just the injury itself. Mm. So I, I guess he's really in a race against time at this point. Uh, but Son Heung-min is on the team. He's the longtime captain, obviously the best player when he's 100% healthy. One other notable name, I think, was midfielder Lee Gang-in, uh, who has apparently been in doghouse for, from uh, Coach Paolo Bento for more than a year now. You know, he was called up for the first time since um, uh, in March 2021, in September for two friendlies, but he did not play at all. Mm. And, you know, you know, a very unusual move for Korean supporters. You know, the coach got booed when uh, Lee Gang-in didn't end up playing against Cameroon in Seoul back on September 27th. But, you know what, um, by selecting Lee Gang-in, when to, explaining his decision to select him this time, Bento said he has made some improvements in certain, as, certain aspects and he played his way onto the squad. So, I guess, the expansion of the World Cup teams for all countries from 23 to 26 this year, I think likely helped someone like Yi Gang In. Yes, I think there would have been quite the public backlash if he hadn't taken E. Whether he'll make an appearance at all is another inqu- another question entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, it seems that Pento has a plan B in case Son's recovery does not go well. He has taken an extra forward who is not on the 26-man roster. Can you tell us more? 
Yeah, so that would be Oh Hyun-gyu, who is 21 years old. He's a forward for Suwon Samsung Blue Wings in the K-League. He led his club with 13 goals this past season, one of the top young players in the South Korean League. He saw, uh, saw a few minutes of action in Korea's 1-0 win over Iceland last Friday. That was the last match for Korea before uh, playing in the World Cup. Uh, that led to speculation that he could be maybe a surprise selection for the team. Uh, he did not make the team uh, in the end, but he will be the 27th man, if you will. He will train with the team in Qatar. He actually traveled with them. Uh, he's an extra guy. If everyone's good to go, he's going to be left off, off the team. But, you know, teams can make last-minute lineup changes within 24 hours the first match in case of injuries. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean he will play instead of Son Min, but he's actually going to be the, on the roster, uh, a chance that he might come off the bench at some point if Tonomin or Nakano or somebody else cannot go. Uh, from you know the 26 man roster, I think midfielder Song Mingyu might be considered the only surprise here, really. Uh, he was the guy that scored a goal against Iceland. He looks to have defeated uh, Spister Roman Sang for that final, I guess, backup winger position. But other than that, not a lot of surprises. Mm. Most of the guys we've seen uh, with Bento in charge for the past two or three years now. Sure. So the final stretch is here. The first game of the World Cup between Qatar and Ecuador kicks off on Sunday or in South Korea at 1am Monday morning. Uh, The first game for South Korea will be on November 24th. That's next week, Thursday at 10pm Korea time. We will have a full comprehensive preview of the tournament on next week's Monday Sports Roundup. Let's move on to baseball now. The 2022 KBO season ended last week with the SSG Landers capturing the Korean series title over the Kium Heroes. This was a historic campaign for the Landers as they never once came down from first place in the regular season. And they capped it off uh, with the championship title as well. Jiho, can you sum it up for us? Yeah, it's just something that has never been done before in the KBO, a team going wire to wire to win the regular season crown and then win the Korean series to cap it all off. And uh, Landers dispatching the QM Heroes in six games in the Korean series for their first title under the name Landers and their fifth championship in franchise history dating back to their SK Wyverns days. Uh, it was a 4-3 win in game six at home to get the job done. It was a bit of a tougher-than-expected battle for the Landers. You know, they were three outs away from losing game five and going down three games to two in the series Monday night. But then Korean series MVP Kim Gang-min delivered a pinch hit, three-run home run in the bottom of the ninth inning for an incredible 5-4 to four victory. Uh, it was one of two ninth-inning home runs that he hit uh, as a 40-year-old veteran. He's the, he's the oldest Korean series MVP ever uh, in the KBO. So the Landers rallied twice from a deficit in game six. They were down 2 nothing, and then they were down 3-2, to two, but ended up winning 4-3. to three. And starting pitcher Kim Gwang-hyun got the final two outs for his third career Korean Series save after throwing 84 pitches the night before. Right, so it was tougher than expected, but the Landers landed on top in the end. Uh, what do you think, Gio? Is it the start of a new era for the Landers? Uh, it's a little hard to tell because a lot of the core guys are a little older now. Uh, you know, looking at Kim Gwang-min, he's the MVP, he's 40 years old. He's, he's maybe got one year left in him. Uh, Chu Shinsu, his friend, he's 40 years old. He's the lead-off guy. Uh, Choi Jung, who is probably the second, who was the runner-up in the MVP voting for the Korean series. Uh, you know, he's going to be, you know, 36, 37 next year. So, and Kim Gwang-hyun, he's, he's, he's been around forever. He's 35 next year. So, a lot of the key guys in the mid-30s now, or even 40s even, uh, they need to have 
more, I guess, 20-something youngsters coming up, but they don't have that kind of pipeline at this point. So maybe they could contend again next year, but beyond that, it's anybody's guess, but just because those guys are getting a little older. Okay, let's wrap up with women's volleyball because the local game has been enjoying the spotlight again with the return of the Korean living legend Kim Young-young drawing sellout or near sellout crowds all over the league. Uh, but on top of selling tickets, her team is also winning a lot of games lately, including a five-set thriller Sunday evening before a season-high 5,800 fans at home. So, Jiho, where Kim goes, the crowd goes, it seems. Uh, pretty much so. On the road at home, uh, she's just you know filling the seats every 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 place that she goes to, and they're winning a lot of games too. Hong Kong Life won their third straight match by defeating Korea Expressway in five sets. They improved to five and one for the season, uh, three points back of the undefeated Hyundai ENC, who is six and zero. Uh, the home team Hong Kong Life won the first two sets in front of a pretty raucous partisan crowd before the opponents battled back to pull even, and then. Deciding fifth set, uh, Hong Kong Life came out on top, 15-9 to to close out the thriller. Kim Young-jung scoring 19 points. Yelena Mladenovic uh, leading all players with 29 points. So this match sold out 5,800 uh, 5, seats. The first time in four years that a women's volleyball league game match drew over 5,000 fans. And the last time Kim played in Korea, a couple of years back, there were still pandemic-related restrictions. Mm. Uh, she's, and then she spent last season in China and came back with uh, all the restrictions gone. Uh, you know, she's been playing in front of full houses everywhere she goes. Uh, this could be, you know, her swan song in the club level. She's already retired from international play. Could be one of the last seasons, if not the last season in club action. And uh, she's been the biggest ticket on the road. Uh, really huge boon for the V-League uh, all across the board. Indeed. It's great to see her back in the domestic league. OK, that's all the time we have for this week's Monday Sports Roundup. Jiho, I know you're heading off to Qatar soon, so uh, you won't be with us for a few weeks. I hope you enjoy yourself out there, and uh, we'll talk to you again after you get back. Take care. OK, thanks for having me today. My name is Son Tejin. You're now listening to Korea 24. We finish up with our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers. And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, joins us in the studio now. Richard, hello. Hope you're doing well. Hello, Jango. Good to see you too. Okay, so what's the first story that you have for us today? Well, Jango, do you listen to audio dramas? Audio dramas? Yes. Okay, uh, not really. I have listened to some audio books from time to time, but uh, audio dramas, no, uh, not recently, I don't think. Uh, what about you? Well, me too. I haven't listened to audio dramas. I've listened to some audio books like you, mm. which I did enjoy, but audio dramas are something I've been thinking about trying recently, and it looks like I'm not the only one. According to Hwang Dong-hee's article in the entertainment section of the Korea Herald, audio dramas are becoming the new trend in South Korea. Oh, interesting. Okay, so uh, what's attracting people then to audio dramas? Well, the article cites a few reasons. The first is that during the COVID-19 pandemic, many people look to video streaming and video content to help pass the time. But because of this, there is something called video fatigue. So people turn to audio dramas. 
Usually they are 10 to 14 minutes long, 10 mm. episodes in each session, and uses a lot of sound effects to help visualize the story. The article also mentions that audio dramas are attractive to listeners because they are able to multitask. They could do work, do homework, and still enjoy the story. Indeed. Okay. And there's a sort of analog charm, I think, to mm-hmm. audio dramas as well. So,、uh, how has the industry been responding? How have、uh, companies、uh, have they been doing anything to adapt to the sudden rise in popularity? Well, it seems like there are many household film and TV actors being brought in by companies to star in audio dramas. Some recent examples include a romance drama released in May called Painful but Desirable, which stars Lee Jun and Park Chou Rong from A Pink. Other actors who have recently starred in audio dramas include Moon Jae Won, Oh Yeon Seo, and Lee Soo Hyuk. The article includes more information about what companies are doing to adapt to the domestic audio market growth. Which is expected to reach roughly 111 billion Korean won in 2024. That's around $84 million. Take in mind that in 2019, that number was around 25 billion Korean won, which is $18 million. Interesting. Even with things like film and online streaming content, metaverse,、mm-hmm. uh, people are still、uh, won over by the charms of uh, uh, audio. Uh, books and、uh, audio stories. I think it's interesting.、Uh, yes, it's a medium that continues to live on. Okay, let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us next? Next, the Korea Times announced the winners of its 18th English Economic Essay Contest. So, in tomorrow's newspaper, you can read some of the submissions. Okay, so tell us more about this contest then. Who was able to take part? So, the contest was for university students. There were two topics they could choose from. One was what should be the strategies for financial companies or how should they use their platforms to lure MZ generation customers. The other topic was what ESG practices can be adopted by financial companies such as banks.、Mm. I believe ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. Right.、Mm. There are two grand prize winners Kim Joo Hyuk, who is studying economics and comparative literature and culture at Yonsei University, and Carlina Lisbeth Castillo Jimenez, an MPA student from the Dominican Republic. Kim's essay touched on how banks should look more caring by funding projects that tackle climate change to attract younger customers. While Carlina's essay suggested using social media platforms like TikTok or Instagram. Interesting. Okay. So, what do they get for winning the top prize then? The article explains that they both will receive 3 million won. That's around 2,000 US dollars. They will also receive an award plaque. The runners up will receive 2 million Korean won an award, and third place will get 1 million Korean won an award. Tomorrow's paper will have the submitted essays, and they are all interesting to read. Indeed, it sounds like、uh, it will be an interesting insight into the minds of the next generation.、Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap it up for our show today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow, so do join us again then.、Uh, I've been your host, Kwon Jang Woo, in the meantime, and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye.